You're listening to Syntax, the podcast with the tastiest web development treats out there. Strap yourself in and get ready. Here is Scott Talensky and Wes Boss. Welcome to Syntax, the podcast with the tastiest web development treats out there. Today, we've got a guest on the podcast who made this really cool app called ZipCall. And uh, we just spent 10 minutes trying to get Zoom working. <laughs> and then this guy just built sort of a, a clone of it in the browser with just JavaScript and it's, it's peer-to-peer. We'll talk all about it. It's really, really cool. But today we are sponsored by two awesome companies. First one is Sentry. Second one is Stackbit. We'll talk about them partway through the episode. Um, but let's let's say welcome. Welcome, Ian. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Not too bad. School's starting to ramp back up again, but from home now, doing good. Oh, that's good. So where are you from and uh, what school do you go to? So right now I'm living in Waterloo, which is it's in yep. Canada. I'm studying computer science there and I'm 19. Grew up in the U.S., lived in Kingston for a little bit, but now I'm, I'm based in Waterloo. Oh, that's awesome. So Waterloo is pretty prestigious comp sci school. In Canada, that's where all the brains tend to go. I went to a school in Toronto and everyone's like, oh, not going to Waterloo. I was like, ah, wasn't wasn't quite smart enough. That's where Google is. That's where famously RIM, like the BlackBerry kind of came out of and stuff like that. Like your classmates are people who would like go work at like Google and things like that. Is that right? Yeah, I got a lot of friends that work at Google and Amazon, uh, a couple of Facebook, a lot of, a lot of very, a lot of very big brain people there. A lot of people <laughs> who are very... A lot of smart people, man. Makes me feel bad sometimes. <laughs> I bet. I bet. How are you doing today, Scott? Hey, I'm doing good. Uh, just getting going, you know, doing that the life where uh, everybody's home all the time. And um, Landon just turned three yesterday. So we had a big old party and that was a lot of fun. Just, yeah, trying to trying to get normal life back working. Oh, that's awesome. So I'm, I'm very curious about this comp sci background. I'm going to ask you a few more questions about that. What year are you in in CompSci at Waterloo right now? So right now I'm in my second year. I'm just finishing off second year right okay. now. Right on. What kind of languages, what are you even learning in CompSci second year right now? So this year I'm taking courses where we're doing some low-level stuff. So we're doing a couple of things with hardware and logic gates. So we're doing some stuff with MIPS. So that's kind of like baby compilers. And we're doing a little bit of C++, I believe, for some algorithm stuff. But that's it. Prior to that, it's... You don't go to Waterloo for what they teach you in, like, as far as useful programming language. Like, no one's teaching you, like, JavaScript or React. In our first term, we learned something called Dr. Racket, which is based on Scheme. It's functional programming. If you know what that is, it's not exactly super relevant these days, in my opinion. But yeah, we spent so much time doing Dr. Racket. It's pretty hellish. (laughs) I don't think a lot of people liked it. But yeah, we did Dr. Racket. Then second term, we did C. Then third term, since our second year, we did C++. But there's really not a lot of coding at Wadu. Like, I spend a very small amount of my time coding. Most of it's just doing math. Really? Which is kind of disappointing. But yeah, it's very theoretical. That's that's really interesting. So the, the coding skills that you do have, is that just picked up in your spare time, sort of hacking on stuff like the Sipcall project we're going to talk about? Yeah, a lot of it's from, I'd say, going to hackathons, working with friends on stuff. What's also really nice about Waterloo is that they have a very strong co-op program. So they help you land internships yeah. at companies. And fortunately, when you work there for four months you tend to pick up a lot just from working with all these people. So I've had two co-ops now and that's been really great. That's where I learned a lot of my skills. Oh as well. yeah. Yeah. It seems like you have a lot of relevant experience when I was looking at your, your site, some interesting companies and work experience there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been lucky. I, 
I work. I first worked at Deloitte through Waterloo's co-op program. That was awesome. I got to work on a super cool team. Got to build some machine learning models, a lot of data scraping, a little bit of React. Pretty pretty nice tech stack. Just finished up four months at Accenture, where we did a lot of work with blockchain. Uh, which <laughs> I have my opinions about blockchain, but yeah, I made like a decentralized health platform with that. So that's pretty neat. I'm very lucky that I haven't had to work with like .NET or like PHP or something like that yet. <laughs> it, it's funny. I'm like, what, 10 years out of co-op right now. So I went to another school in Canada and we had co-ops as well. But the Waterloo kids always got the really good co-ops at Accenture and Deloitte and Google and Facebook. We were the ones that took the .NET <laughs> co-ops and everything like that. I mean, you'd be surprised. Most of my friends at Facebook are doing PHP, so it's not all glamorous oh, yeah. there. That's true. Where, what school did you, uh, did you study at? I went to Ryerson in Toronto, and I did, a, I did the Information Technology Management course, which is now called Business Technology Management. It's a business degree focused on tech. And I majored in, I forget, I did a lot of telecom, which is why I, when I saw this thing that you built, I immediately was like, damn, this is cool because I went to school for this stuff and it's super complicated. And then I looked at the source code of it and I was like, this is really not all that out there anymore. It's it's pretty simple with, with web tech. Oh yeah. It's abstracted away beautifully. Yeah. All right, so l- let's get into talking about this. So the, the website that you built is called zipcall.io. Essentially what it is, is it's a peer-to-peer video calling application that uses web tech and allows you to do things like a Zoom call. There's a whole bunch of features in it. Do you want to like give us a quick rundown of what it is and, and why you built it? For sure. So I guess I can kind of start with the why first. Yeah. And that goes back to when I started doing a lot of this work from home. So I was at Accenture kind of my last month there. And they're like, all right, you're not allowed to come to the office. Everything's starting to shut down from COVID. And I wanted to talk to my friends. I wanted to call them. I was like, okay, how do I do this? So one of them was like, all right, you need to download Skype. You need to sign in. And I was like, all right, so I download Skype. You start with like a Microsoft account. They want like a phone number. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, this sucks. I'm like, whatever, I do it. And I try and call my other friend. He's like, all right, let's use Discord. I was like, what the heck? I was like, why do I have to download all these different platforms? Like, I just want something that works in the web that's like literally just meets my needs. That was the original goal. Just something that I can use with my friends that's really simple and will will just work. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't find it. So I just started walking around the apartment. I just was like complaining. My roommate was like, if you're so annoyed with this, like, why don't you just build it? And I was like, you know what? Screw it. Maybe I will. <laughs> so we kind of had this bet that I he didn't think I could build video calling because I don't know, it's pretty daunting from the surface because a lot of problems you need to tackle to make it even just usable. Like, you know, echo reduction, auto scaling, video quality, stuff that's not really trivial. Yeah. Well, clearly I won that bet. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I made it really just used for myself and I wanted something that was browser-based. That was number one requirement because I grew up with my grandmother. Um, and I, I, I think I kind of coined this term. I want to call it the grandma test. She's 80 years old, doesn't know how to use a yeah. computer. No way I could get her to download Zoom, change the audio input, and oh, wait, now I have to restart. Like, it's, it's too much. Um, so I was like, what's the simplest thing I could kind of go for? And that would be sending an email, having her click one link, and it just automatically joins, automatically selects the right input, automatically scales video, does everything that you know a sensible video chat should. And that was kind of how it started. And then from there, I think the second kind of important part of it is the peer-to-peer aspect of things, uh, how there's not this kind of central server that's relaying video between everyone. So if you look at a traditional solution from Zoom or Facebook Messenger or Google Hangouts, they all have some, they all either use an SFU or an MCU, which is 
SFU is a selective forwarding unit. I forget what the MCU stands for, but essentially it just acts as a central source where all the data flows into and flows out of. But those are really expensive. If you wanted to build an actual really great solution, you'd have a global cluster of these. They're all very local to users' computers. They need to be very fast. They need to be able to be very performant because they're streaming you know, high bandwidth video. It's not cheap. And if I built my own version of that with you know, the number of users that Zipcall is getting today, my poor little college budget would have been blown a long time ago. I would have, uh, credit card companies would have been knocking at my door. AWS would have been like, hello. <laughs> yeah, because like, like that's what Zoom uses right now. I'm, there is some benefits to that because like I'm recording in the cloud right now, although like, maybe we'll talk about that. But the video has to go from my computer, which I'm in the woods in Canada right now, over to Zoom. And then Zoom needs to relay that over to Scott and to you and things like that. And that gets really, really expensive at the end of the day if you need to run servers that are sort of in the middle. So the tech behind this is using WebRTC, which allows you to connect directly to the person on the call from your computer to their computer. And then there's a direct line from you to them. That's right, right? Yeah, that's right on. So I use WebRTC and I connect people together through a process that's called an ICE candidate exchange. And then majority of the time it will succeed. So that process kind of looks like there's my IP address, there's your IP address. In between us, there's firewalls, there's different internet service providers, there's whatever country restrictions. And to get people connected, you have to go through a process that's called NAT traversal. Yeah. That doesn't always succeed, but majority of the time it does. And that's essentially how you create a really great peer-to-peer connection. I'm very curious about it because when Get User Media and WebRTC came out, this was probably seven years ago, I went whole hog on it. And I thought, this is so cool that you can finally access the webcam. Like you were probably like 11 years old when I was trying to do this in Flash and it was really cool. And then (laughs) they finally came to the browser where you could access the user's webcam and WebRTC rolled out at the same time. And I tried to build an app, but I hit these roadblocks, which is trying to understand what like network traversal, stun, turn, Mm-hmm. servers like do you do you know what those are what are stun and turn servers like what are they for so i'm not going to claim to be a networking <laughs> expert and i'm sure you have a lot of those that listen so i have to be oh. very careful with my words i went but, to school for networking i don't understand it so i'm sure very few people actually do <laughs> <laughs> okay okay so maybe that's my safety yeah. net of all this gibberish but the key players as you mentioned are stun and turn so stun is for a process that's called not traversal that's getting people connected past their firewalls but the problem is, is that that doesn't always succeed. Like, for instance, I was my friend was working at IBM and I was at Accenture, two companies that both have like ridiculous security policies. Yeah. Not traversal will never succeed there just because they have like peer-to-peer connections that are straight up blocked, at least on company internet. When that fails, you need to have some type of backup. And in that case, that's when you use what's called a turn server. And that's just a very lightweight server that acts as a relay between two candidates. So for that, I use a service... I pay for a service from Twilio. It's like 40 cents a gigabyte. I think it's pretty expensive, but Twilio was the fastest one that I could find. And that's kind of why I chose. And it's also very simple. So the video, if both of you are behind a firewall where you can't traverse the network and connect these two things, then the turn server acts as as an in-between, sort of takes in the video and hot potatoes it over to the other people on the call. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. It just acts as a simple relay. Oh, that's cool. It's almost like another person in the call. Yeah. But it never actually decrypts anything. It just kind of passes it along. And then what is ICE? 
So ICE gets a little bit more complicated, and I'm by no means an expert on it, but I'm just going to give my <laughs> my kind of chimp level understanding of it. I think chimp level understandings work very well <laughs> on this show. That's kind of what we aim for. <laughs> you know, you roll back the clock enough, we're all chimps, right? <laughs> Some of us know how to clickety-clack on a keyboard. <laughs> but it stands for Internet Connectivity Establishment, and you have to trade these, they're called ICE candidates, back and forth. And an ICE candidate is essentially kind of like a path between two users. The thing is, you have to try it a couple of times to find a path that actually works. And this entire process is pretty complicated, at least when you're first getting started. To do this, you need something that's called a signaling server. So before you can actually establish the call, you both need to connect to some centralized server. For me, it's just some node server that I have deployed on Heroku. And it pretty much just shoots these ICE candidates back and forth using the stun server. And it's trying to find a path between the two people. So that's what the role of ICE is. Ah. That makes a lot of sense, man, that you explain it a lot better because I read, I don't know, 50 articles about it when this first came out. And then in preparation for this podcast, I went back into it and I still was like, OK, I kind of get it. But then there's lots of diagrams with arrows and it's, my eyes start to glaze <laughs> over. It's I think that there is an incredible opportunity for making the whole signaling process of exchanging ice candidates and, you know, stun and not traversal and all that stuff. I think it'd be done so much better. Like right now, it's like eight steps back and forth to start a WebRTC call. It's so many steps that I actually use a WebSocket to go through that process because a WebSocket, in my mind, was just quicker than just constantly sending like, you know, just standard like HTTP requests when really it should just be like, you know, one and done, I think. So someone wants to make a service that abstracts that away even better than it is now. I'd be a big fan. Who knows? Maybe I'll make it one of these days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's always good to have those ideas sitting in your back pocket. Yeah. So another reason why I wanted to have you on on the call was I went and looked at it and it's awesome and it's it's open source. And I just was kind of just clicking through the code and I was like, there's no real bundler here. It's almost entirely done in vanilla JavaScript. It looks like there's a little bit of jQuery in there. Regrettably. And yeah. And then it leans on on like browser APIs. So it was incredibly easy for, I think, pretty much anyone who's listening to this podcast can go ahead and clone this repo and and sort of read through the code in, I don't know, four hours or so and see how it works. Because there's not a whole lot of like magic being hidden in NPM install dependencies at all. It's just, I, I think probably the biggest one you have is you've got an express server and uh, WebSockets that do the talking between the two people on the call. Is that right? Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm very proud of how simple it is. It's a little bit messy now because a lot of the UI got mixed in with the kind of actual chat logic. Yeah. So I think the actual main JavaScript file commented run under prettier, um, which is a file formatter. I think it's like 900 lines, which is pretty baby for the entire application. Yeah, totally. And the entire backend is like 110 lines. So it's it's small, right? Like you could understand in an afternoon. My roommate figured out in like an hour or two, and he's by no means a web developer. So if you want to look at it, uh, it's all commented decently well. Um, you know, give me give me some thoughts, but it's pretty simple to understand. And that was that's kind of when I code. I'm very much a person who likes simple things because I think the more complex and convoluted things get, they're harder to maintain. People don't understand them. It's harder to parse. It's slower to update. So there's the people that like to do things correctly and you know make sure everything is you know super maintainable and perfect and beautiful with all these large classes and everything. Yeah. I'm not that person. I'm not saying I write garbage, but I very much value uh, to get things done as little lines as possible, which has its trade-offs. But it's pretty crazy. Like the entire backend is that is like 
it's like 100 lines, 110 yeah. lines. Um, and like 40 of that is just serving static files, which I probably shouldn't be doing. I probably should use like an S3 bucket for that, but eh. Yeah. You did it. Like, that's why I, I wanted to have you. Like, I saw this like, this is wicked. Like, like the guy just made this thing and and just did it. And like, never mind best practices and the best way to approach things and, and all this stuff. Like, you literally just made a chat JS, started coding, script sourced that sucker in, and it works, right? <laughs> like, there's not a whole lot of yeah. complicated stuff. And I, I think for anyone trying to learn or or see how other people code, I think that's a, a pretty awesome uh, way to do it. Yeah. My one regret was that I didn't make the application in React. I used jQuery, which I guess is good because it makes things like making a draggable video element. Like it's really easy to have jQuery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it's great for prototyping and just when you just need a two line fix, it just works. But you kind of have some issues as far as like managing state that get kind of gross. But maybe I'll redo it in React one of these days. But jQuery is great for getting stuff done quickly. Like once you've got the stun turn server connections and everything, like how do you literally send the data from from one to another? And a lot of my courses we use get user media, the API for accessing webcam or audio. And then WebRTC is the API for sending data from point to point. It's just an RTC peer connection that allows you to send it. And then and then it's simply just setting a video source to a stream object. That's right. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. You, you Once you get connected, you create a new peer object and then you just send that puppy over and the other person just has to set like some HTML video tag to be that source. It's not bad at all. Just getting just getting that WebRTC peer connection set up is a little bit annoying, but once it's there, you can just attach whatever you want. Like right now in Zipcall, there's a peer connection. Well, there's one peer connection, but inside that there's a data channel for the actual video. And there's another data channel for just sending miscellaneous commands. Like when you use the text chat sent over a data channel or when you turn on captions, because you have to tell the other person information about that. And you no longer have a central server to relay messages through. So you have to send it via peer-to-peer. That's also done through a data channel. It's it's a decently elegant solution. Oh, so you can have multiple data channels between a single connection? Yeah. Wow. Like right now, I'm working on creating another data channel. Not working, it's done. I'm just kind of refining a couple of things. So that you can send files between two people really, really quickly over peer-to-peer. And it's the exact same concept, just instead of sending a video or like text information, nice and binary. Wow. That's like one thing that blew my mind because I, for years, I thought WebRTC is for video, but it's for literally anything, right? Like any data that's converted to a stream can be sent over WebRTC. To my understanding, yeah. yeah, like you can send you can send files over it. So I don't see why you couldn't send anything. The big advantage is the real time aspect of it. It's really great. Yeah, like one app that I use for totally legitimate reasons is WebTorrent. And WebTorrent <laughs> is a JavaScript based torrent client that allows you to stream video as it's being downloaded. And this is awesome because mm. you could also like I, I've looked into it once before where I have a video course platform. I pay through the nose for bandwidth for streaming my videos. And a lot of people have said like you can utilize the people that are watching the video to also upload that to other people who are trying to watch it. And that's how torrents work is torrents. There's no central service where the data lives. It's just between different peers visiting the website. I I never did that because I I don't think that I want to use my user's bandwidth for it. But 
Um, right. Yeah. It blew my mind that you could. <laughs> like, why is this online video course using 100 megabits for upload? I'm so confused. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Today's sponsor is Stackbit. It's a pretty cool tool to work with your Jamstack website. They've coined the term the best way to Jamstack. So, sort of a, a couple interesting things it does with a Jamstack is it does inline editing. So Stackbit integrates with your CMS to enable on-page editing. No more waste of time searching for the headline within the CMS. And that's actually a big frustration with a lot of CMSs is that like you see the page and then you see the CMS, but you don't know like where do I edit that and, and like how does it work? So what Stackbit will do is it'll hook up with your existing CMS Contentful, Sanity, Dato, Netlify, Forestry, and it'll give you a UI where you can just edit it as if you are on or if you're right on the website, which is pretty cool. They also allow you to do things like preview and share changes before they go live. You can test on different devices. It works with Gatsby. So Stackbit is a really cool tool. It works with your existing CMS. It works with your existing Jamstack website, which is pretty nifty. We want you to go on over to stackbit.com. Check it out. They've got a whole bunch of different examples that are available to you. This might just be the tool that you need for your next Jamstack website. Thanks so much to Stackbit for sponsoring. So I, I love seeing different things. So WebTorrent is the client. And then there's a library underneath. And it's, it's implemented in JavaScript where you can just do peer-to-peer connections really simply. Maybe it's not even a library. Maybe it's just R, this RTC connection. It could be. Peer-to-peer is ridiculously powerful. I don't think a lot of people realize that. You can do a lot of really interesting stuff. For instance, like I think Zipcalls had well over 100,000 users at this point. Really? Yeah, it's it's pretty nuts. Blows my mind. Total luck with timing and all that. But And all this is running on a $7 a month Heroku server that's less powerful than your iPhone. And it's operating at like 20% capacity. (laughs) Man, like how did those 100,000 people find you? So I think I started, the first place I went to was I went to Reddit and I just kind of blitzed Reddit. I just kind of was like, all right, whatever. What's the easiest way for me to get this out? I don't have a lot of time. I'm still working full time. So I said, all right, I'm just going to pick the top 20 subreddits. I think this will do well. And then I posted it. Half of them, it got downvoted to nothing. because like, ah, stop like self-promotion or whatever. Yeah. And it wasn't even supposed to be self-promo. I just was like, hey, I made this really cool thing to video chat with my friends. Check it out if you want. And that was kind of pretty much what I said. Like I made it to the front of r slash JavaScript. I made it to the front of r slash entrepreneur. Made it to the front of r slash WebRTC, r slash Heroku. Like a couple million people, as far as like people who were subscribed in different subreddits, saw it for a long time. That was kind of the big first key was I gained maybe 20,000 users in two days from Reddit. Wow. But because I linked on the actual Zipcall website to GitHub, what was great is that a lot of those people were then converted to go to GitHub and start like right now, I think it has 2000 stars on GitHub. It's pretty crazy because most of my friends don't have anything more than five. You know, five is like, oh, wow, you built something awesome. Like you went to hacking on <laughs> and like five of those, like three of those people that started were just your friends. 2000, it's a good bit more than that. So what that allowed me to do from there is I then skyrocketed into the front page of GitHub. I was the number one. I don't know if you know this, but there's actually a trending page on GitHub that a lot of people check. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Apparently. It also shows up in kind of like that sidebar when you log in, like, oh, like explore these repositories. And that was the number one repo for, I think, three days, definitely two days. Um, and I was on the front page for like four or five days. So I got a lot of people that just kind of saw us on GitHub. And I think kind of the important lesson from that is to get to the front of these trending pages, it's not really about velocity. Like it's not how quickly you're gaining users 
or sorry, it's not how many users you have, it's acceleration. So if you go from 20,000 you know, stars to 40,000 stars, that probably won't get you to the front page of GitHub um, or even Reddit, right? But when you go from having three stars to 600 stars, that's a couple order of magnitude increase. And all these search algorithms are like, hey, there must be something interesting going on. So this positive feedback loop starts to occur where because you got this quick influx of users, you know, I get pushed to the front page and you get even more users. And then Google works the exact same way as far as it measures acceleration and change in number of hits, not necessarily just the total number of volume. How did your server deal with this immediate influx? Now, granted, I, I would imagine it's not doing a crazy amount of stuff, but did you notice any sort of issues with the influx of users that sudden jump? Did you have to scale up or anything or, or was it mostly okay? So the first day I launched it, which I'm, I remember I told my roommate, my friend was to get a thousand people to use this. If I can get a thousand people, I'm ecstatic. I ended up doing like 20,000 in two days. So I beat that by a good bit. Um, <laughs> I think in one hour I did like 5,000, five or 6,000 people, which is, and that's a lot for HD video calls. So the server serves really two main functions. The first is serving static files, like your CSS, your JavaScript, all that good stuff. And the other half of it is that once you have two people sitting in a room waiting for the call, it acts as a signaling server. So you open up a WebSocket connection from each caller to the Heroku server, and you just pretty much just send data back and forth for about three or four seconds saying like, hey, this is my IP address. Here's some ICE candidates. Try these out. Let me know if they work. And that person goes, hmm, okay, these ICE candidates didn't work. You know, here's my WebRT settings. Let's try these ones. And they just go back and forth a couple of times till it works. That's really all the signaling server does. So that process is pretty quick. And once, and this is something I think actually helped out a lot, is once two callers are connected, they disconnect from the server, like completely. So the server doesn't even have a notion that these people are on a, on a video call right now, which is something that really helped. Because if you have 6,000 people on the call, having 6,000 open WebSocket connections, it starts to take a toll. Sure, if you have like a large AWS instance that has a lot of bandwidth um, and a compute, no problem. But again, college budget people are running this on the cheapest Heroku that I could find. Heroku, for those of you who don't know, is it's just a web hosting platform like AWS, but cheaper and more user-friendly. Yeah, <laughs> Check it yeah out. definitely more user-friendly. And the, the big thing that I got lucky with, I'm primarily Python, I would say. I prefer Python slightly over JavaScript, but I decided to do the backend in Node and Express, which ended up being a godsend because of, you know, it's event-driven architecture, right? Yeah. And it's non-blocking IO stuff. If I did this in Python, and if all it was was a simple static file server, no way. The response times would have been through the roof. It would have been terrible. But because it didn't node with all that async magic, it actually managed to scale pretty well. I don't think I ever hit more than 70% usage. Um, response time was always under a second. Yeah, pretty crazy. If there's one thing I learned was node is very powerful when it comes to things like this. Very powerful. Wow. So that's, yeah, that's a pretty, pretty sweet lesson. So do you want to talk about some of the features now, Wes? Specifically, I'm just curious about like the browser bakes in things like echo cancellation. So if you don't have headphones on and you have a call on the sort of the echo cancellation and that sort of infinite feedback, all of that stuff that's done by the browser. But you also said you have like auto scaling video. Does the browser do that as well? You do that through WebRTC. So not quite the browser, but yes, it's through WebRTC. And how, how does that work? Like, Because WebRTC doesn't know about video streams, does it? Yeah, it does. It's it's ridiculously easy. You literally just pack it, pass in a JSON object that's like 
auto scale equals true. <laughs> <laughs> There's like more more parameters that you can tune, and I I spent a lot of time experimenting with them as far as capping max frame rates, capping max bit rate, audio sampling frequency, all that type of stuff. Yeah, but they picked really sensible defaults, and even though I spent like a week experimenting with it, trying to change stuff, they did a lot of things right. It's kind of funny. I made this entire thing and I didn't even realize I had echo cancellation or noise background elimination or anything like that. It wasn't until I started learning that it was doing this automatically. I started turning things off and I was like, oh, wow, like you really need this stuff. Like if you don't have echo cancellation, it's totally unusable. And if you don't get rid of that kind of background fuzz just from people's microphones or they get gets introduced to network or whatever, call quality sucks. But yeah, it's super accessible. They do a really great job at it. Yeah, I would say it rivals like a Zoom or a FaceTime or anything like that as far as its audio quality. Yeah, like I remember when this came out, like Skype had spent like years getting audio cancellation and all this stuff implemented. And then they just rolled it out in the browser for free. And that's when things like Slack and whatever just started adding video calling to their apps. Like it was no big deal because they can lean on on using WebRTC. Abstraction is a beautiful thing. <laughs> I think if there's one thing that I hope people can take away from this is I'm some I'm some 19 year old kid who just had an idea. Yeah. And two weeks later, with some Googling and a lot of copying and pasting, <laughs> made something, made a decent video chat with 100,000 users. I don't claim to be a genius. I don't claim to be an incredible developer. I do think I'm clever, though, as far as my ability to Google. But I think that's all anyone really needs. Totally. And that's just... I don't know, kind of the power of all of these libraries and how sophisticated a lot of these things are. How long have you been coding then? So I started in high school. I was first introduced to it in grade 10. <laughs> Funny story. I took this introductory programming class. We were doing Python, which was a good choice. But I took it because there was this girl that I liked. And I thought <laughs> she was taking the class. So I'm like, all right, here's the plan. We're going to sign up this class. We're going to sit beside her. I had this whole, this whole thing, this mastermind plan out. Classic. First day of Classic. class. <laughs> She's not there. Not even that. The entire class is guys. So I'm like, what the hell? I've been baited. But at this point, it's like, all right, whatever. We're just going to stick it out. Um, <laughs> so I start, go- I start going through this class. I was lucky for whatever reason. Um, I always did really well in high school. Um, I knew how to check the right boxes. So I was used to, you know, getting like 97s, 98s, all those ridiculously inflated numbers that high schools give out these days. But I was doing really terribly in this class. Like, my first assignment, I think I got a 50. I don't think I saw anything under a 90 before. So I was just like <laughs> appalled. I was like, what the heck? I was like, what's a for loop? Like, how do you print something? I couldn't understand this idea of stepping through code instructions. And I don't really know what changed, but I kind of went from getting like 50s on a lot of these assignments and doing really terribly, just like for loops and printing and like, you know, iterate through, like, not even iterate through anything, just for loops and if statements. and just did not click. But I think one day... I just was working on it and it just made sense. And I asked my teacher, I was like, hey, can I redo all my assignments? He's like, sure, man. So I redid all my assignments. I ended up actually winning the award for that class, which was pretty interesting. <laughs> and I don't say that to, to claim I'm some genius programmer. I claim to say, I say that because it was not all, you know, rainbows and sunshine. It was really frustrating for me at the beginning. Totally. It doesn't have to be. It's pretty easy to pick up. So that was grade 10, did a little bit of Python. Grade 11, I took a course and we did Flash. We did ActionScript, which is <laughs> you can check out all the games I made on my website. It's just ianramsey.com. We made a bunch of little stupid Flash games. Flash is deprecated. Don't learn Flash, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty useless. Yeah, it's, do not. No. Not right now. No. <laughs> I'll just finish the timeline real quick. 
grade 12, we did Java, went to Waterloo for computer science. First year, we did some Racket, a little bit of C++. Didn't really learn how to code that much, but learned a lot about like memory and recursion, a lot of the fundamentals. Did my first work term, did four months at Deloitte, a lot of Python, a little machine learning, some AWS, React, JavaScript. Went back to school for four months, honestly learned nothing new. Then did four months at Accenture where I did some JavaScript, blockchain, and Python. That's the whole timeline. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I think that's an, definitely useful for our audience to know because it is, it's, I don't know, like Wes and I have both interesting trajectories into this stuff as well, I think. And in general, it's always good to hear how people advance through their careers like this. And your career is still very early on considering you're still a student. So it's amazing to to hear. I have a question about the screen sharing aspect of this. So it doesn't seem like it's all that complex. Is it just basically swapping the media? I mean, is there a whole lot to it other than that? Is like, what what is the process for getting screen sharing working? Because that to me seems like something that would have been somewhat complex considering the ramifications of sharing screens and all that thing. I am always shocked at how much you can do in the browser. Like the fact that I could do picture in picture to me, so you could literally change to a different desktop and still have like a UI element that floats on top of the floating video. I couldn't believe I had that much control as a JavaScript developer. And same thing with screen sharing. It's not bad. You just call one line, you save it to an object, and then you just have to swap it in with a new video feed. Swapping in with a new video feed took me a little bit of Googling to figure out how to do that properly. But no, it's pretty dang easy. (laughs) Hardest part about it, I would say, other than the swapping streams kind of dynamically in the chat. Because before what I would do, um, this was a really naive approach, is I would essentially end the peer connection. So end the call, Mm. then create a new call with that screen sharing video. I learned how to fix that. The hardest problem about all this is just cross-browser compatibility. Some stuff works in one browser, doesn't work in another. And when you're using all these experimental things like WebRTC, but it's not super well supported. Yeah. You know, getting screen sharing, all this stuff. I use a library called adapter.js. Beautiful library. I have no clue what it does. I just know that it works and it just makes WebRTC work like 50% better. Um, you just slap that bad boy in there. It'll make your calls. <laughs> like literally like get display user media. It'll, I think it will override them with whatever the browser specific version is. And it'll do things like that. Because before when I made Zipcall, it was not working on Safari whatsoever. I had no clue how to get it working on Safari. I spent like days trying to you know read through console logs. Like, why is this failing? That's failing. Yeah. And I couldn't figure it out because it was the exact same code that worked perfectly on Chrome. And this is when, you know, there wasn't all these fancy features. This one just was the most basic video chat, like two or three hundred lines in chat.js, the, the client JavaScript. But I just included adapter.js one day and I was like, oh, sweet. We got iOS support now. We got we got Safari support on desktop. Oh, so it does work on mobile now? Oh, yeah. Pretty well fully supported on Android as long as you, like, your browser is like, up to date. So if you use Chrome, no problems. If you use iOS, the only caveat is you have to use Safari because Apple will block WebRTC that isn't in the native iOS browser. So mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. But... Those are pretty reasonable restrictions for most users. Most people on iPhone, I have the statistics to back it up, use Safari. On Chrome, most people, or sorry, on Android, most people use Chrome. So support is pretty good now. I wonder if the the reason why they do that is because they don't want people making like apps in JavaScript to like sort of rival FaceTime. That's sort of why I thought they never, they didn't do it for the longest time is that they wanted to get a hold on FaceTime first before they let everybody go willy-nilly and make their own WebRTC zip call. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that was exactly their play. 
There's also other things like you can't have more than one or two videos auto playing, I believe. Like it's it's a real pain pain in the bum to to get that working. Yeah. So you have to have your own video facing yourself, the other person. And there's like play buttons and stuff that you have to hide. They do not make it easy. As opposed to on Android, it just worked flawlessly. Like whatever worked on Chrome desktop worked on Chrome mobile. Yeah, I I think all of that is in, intentional on on their end. <laughs> I think there's also an argument for there's some security issues with WebRTC. At least there used to be. I'm no security researcher, but if you use it nefariously, you can figure out people's IP address. And I think Apple's a very privacy-focused yeah. company. So maybe that's another kind of angle, but I don't know. And you have captions? How does that work? Captions are probably my favorite, most useless feature. <laughs> the other person, so let's say I'm on a call with my friend Joe. If I want to see captions of what Joe is saying, Joe has to be running Chrome, which is, seems a little bit weird and convoluted, but I'll explain why I said I, I did it like this. So I use the built-in browser text speech. It's uh, speech synthesis. I used it the other day. Yeah, built into Chrome. Um, I don't think it's built into other browsers. At least it's the one in that Firefox I use now. Oh, is it in Firefox? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I used it the other day in Firefox. I was surprised it was in there. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I'll have to make that work on Firefox because right now I block it and I just say, "Oh, that person needs to use Chrome." But <laughs> yeah, I do some really naive stuff. But pretty much, I run that on the person who's calling. And I send it over the data connection via that peer-to-peer data channel I was talking about earlier where you send you know, your text chats through. Um, I also send captions through that. The reason why I do that is because if you run text-to-speech on the input as you're receiving it, text-to-speech adds a delay of half a second to, to one second, right? So by the time those captions appear and you're reading along, it's too slow. It's too delayed. It's really hard to keep up. But if you run that speech recognition on the other person's computer, and then you send it over as text data. The text data will send much quicker than the video data will. The captions will actually arrive pretty much in real time oh. as compared to the audio source. In fact, sometimes the captions will beat the video and audio. So it's it's quite a nice experience. And I think that was the right way to do things. Yeah, captions are they're pretty freaky. That's cool. They're pretty cool. I also made real-time translation for that. Jeez. So it would like auto-detect <laughs> language and then it would capture yeah. that person yeah. the language you want. It's amazing how much was crammed into this thing, considering how simple yeah. and how how easy to parse all of this this code is. I mean, it's like you mentioned, Wes. It's not a lot of code here, and it's amazing how many features uh, exist in this. Totally. One thing I, I should correct myself: it's not in Firefox. Speech synthesis, which is text to speech, is, but the other way around, which is speech to text, is not in Firefox yet. I think it's called the Web Speech API. That's what I use in. In Chrome, it's really simple to use as well. It's just new speech recognition. If you're looking for the API in your console, <laughs> you gotta love JavaScript. <laughs> UserMedia.get display. Yeah, new speech recognition. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, whereas like you, you, you know, try and add two strings together and see. Good luck with that. <laughs> yes, I have a fun question here. The loading animation that you have when you're waiting for people to connect. It's really nice. Did you is that did you make that or was that like a I found a GIF on the internet because people were telling me they weren't sure what was going on in the application. So I was like, I need a loader. So I just looked at <laughs> loader GIFs and then I just spent like 10 minutes in Photoshop removing the background. Awesome. Yeah. No, that, that was a really nice touch. I thought it was um I don't know, it, it it almost had like a lot of personality to it. So bravo for picking uh something interesting there. Uh did you, you. did you design this thing? It looks awesome. So this is something I got a little bit of criticism on Reddit because I probably should have made this more open. But the actual landing pages, I didn't design myself. 
I use, I forget the, the artist's name, but they make really great templates. Um, but yeah, the landing page, I didn't really, I didn't make myself. I use pre-made components. Oh, yeah. But the actual UI for the chat, I made from scratch. You can look at all the, the nasty CSS and, and jQuery. It's all there. That's cool. This episode is sponsored by our good friends over at Sentry, and I'm talking Sentry.io. Now, Sentry is the perfect place to see all of the errors and exceptions that your application faces all at once in a nice cataloged way for you to be able to tackle these issues. Now, one of the coolest things that I like about Sentry is the fact that I can create a GitHub issue directly from my application on Sentry. I just click, hey, link to GitHub issue, and I can create an issue. It links it directly to Sentry. Everybody can go ahead and see exactly what the error is. You can link directly to the Sentry error itself. You can choose the assignee directly from there. If I want to give it to an employee or another developer and say, hey, this is right up your alley, I can just assign it directly from Sentry. I don't have to pop back and forth between GitHub and Sentry whenever I encounter an issue. And then Once that issue is complete, I can go ahead and and click resolved within Sentry. And if that error pops back up again, you know what it's going to do? It's going to tell me that there was a regression and that I need to fix it. So I love tools like this. It really helps me understand exactly what's happening within my application. And if you want to try out Sentry yourself, head on over to Sentry.io. Use the coupon code TASTYTREAT, all lowercase, all one word, and you're going to get two whole months for free. So check it out. That's more than enough time to experience uh, just how cool Sentry is and just how nice it is for your application. There is a reason why so many important popular companies trust their errors and exceptions with Sentry. Recording. Have you looked into any of the recording APIs that exist out there? I've only done it with audio before, but is it possible to do that with video as well? Yeah, I saw a library. It's called Record RTC. Yeah. I haven't experimented with it. I'd love to build it in, but to be entirely honest, I really don't have the time these days. Yeah. As far as school's kind of kicking my ass right now, I have to find a deck my next internship. That's another requirement of kind of my school program. I don't have as much time as I'd like to spend on zip call. That's for sure. But it's totally doable. If someone wants to like make a button and make a PR for that, I'll approve that like so fast. That would be, it'd be really cool. I'm just looking at this record RTC and it does screen recording and everything, but Safari, which is unreal if you think about it, because now you can like Scott and I are both professional screen recorders in our jobs. Uh, we make tutorials. So Like, imagine you could make a browser-based screen recorder, much like Figma is like a browser-based design app. I think parts of DaVinci, no, I don't know if that's true. DaVinci Resolve is available on Windows, Mac, and Linux. And I was thinking, like, maybe they're using web tech behind there to make that work. Web applications are getting, they're getting very sophisticated. I remember there used to be a point in my life where I would look for a desktop app when I was younger, I was like, oh, I wish there was like a Google Drive app. You yeah. Know? Because to me, it'd be faster and it would, like there's something faster than opening an app. Or yeah. like I used to use the Spotify app on my MacBook or the, the Notion app on my MacBook. But now I do everything in the browser. I live there. Except for like my IDE and terminal, I have very few desktop applications. Web is really the future. It's funny you say that. IDE and terminal, both my IDE and terminal are desktop apps, air quotes here, but they're both built in web tech. Which is just something about having something in your dock, making it feel like a real app. But like you said, it's all it's all web tech on, underneath, which is cool. It's so fast to develop, even with how quickly you know the Chrome V8 engine has progressed. The applications themselves are also very performant now. Sky's really the limit. 
I get these emails every day and I know you, you teach a lot of people how to code, which I think is, is so awesome. That's something I think I'll probably do later in life. Yeah. So I get all these emails like, wow, you're 19. You've worked all these places. How did you learn to code? Oh my God, you go to Waterloo. How'd you do this? How'd you do that? Stuff? Yeah. You don't need any of that. I'll tell you what you need. The first thing is you just need to Google, right? Yeah. That's like level one. Level two is find yourself just a nice online video course. Could be a great one from Wes. It could be something on Udemy, <laughs> but there you go. get yourself a good web developer course or whatever course you want to do. Just pick a project, something you want to make. For me, it was video call. I wanted to make video calling and then just build it. Make sure you ship because once you make something and you build something, it is so addictive and it is so energizing to be like, wow, I made this. And you just show it off to your friends. Like it, the first time I showed zip call to someone and the call actually connected and I was talking to my friend in the US, I was like, no way. I was like, as if I just couldn't stop laughing. So you got to get to that aha moment really quickly. I, I, I'm not special. I'm not some genius. I just yeah. Google well. And I, I hope that you hear this story as far as the success of Zipcall. And you can do a lot of it. And, and maybe there's another thing I want to say. Mm-hmm. And again, I really don't mean this to flex, but in the last month, I've probably had people offer me over a million dollars in seed capital investments. So literally, <laughs> I was having venture firms every day calling me, reaching out in San Francisco and New York being like, hey, we want to give you $300,000 to make this commercial product. Hey, drop out of school, come come move here and come do this. And this was just the most ridiculous thing to me ever. Because I was like, it's just some side project. 3,000 lines of JavaScript that you threw together and there's people offering you hand over fist money. Oh, there's like acquisition talks and stuff like this. It, it really made me realize a lot of these, you know, crazy Silicon Valley founders, they're no smarter than us. Mm-hmm. They got lucky. I got lucky in the sense that Sure. Yeah. I made a great product, had a great UI. It, it served its, the core functionalities. It did a really great job at, but also had really great product market fit. People were fed up with Zoom. Security issues were there. Yeah. People want something in the browser. Everyone was desperate looking for video calling. And I just launched at the perfect time. and I gained a lot of users really quickly. Um, and there's yeah. a lot of luck in that, you know? Totally. I love that. Like, if anything, it's a lot like my my story where one of the first things that I did was when WebRTC came out and get user media is I figured out how to detect the face on it, which is trivial now, but back in the day, it was much harder using a library and I overlaid glasses on it. And the people are like, wow, how did you figure that out? That you must be so smart. I'm like, no, I literally am just hacking stuff together. Um, And then from that, I got um, conference talks and to my website and people loved it. And it's just like, I literally just had this idea and went out and did it. It wasn't beautiful. The the code was awful, but I, I just went out and did it. And I think that that's such a good thing to tell people who are in the code. And here, here's just another perfect example. Yeah. There's just something just so mysterious about software engineering, computer science. <laughs> oh, I'm a programmer. What do you do? I, I sit there and I write ones and zeros all day and in a dark room. It's like, that, that's not at all what happens. You know, what I do, my friends at Facebook and Google do, Something doesn't work. We copy paste what doesn't work into Google. We figure it out. We fix it. People say why the code we wrote wasn't good. We change it a little bit more and they push it and you get paid a lot of money to do it. It's not the most complex thing in the world. And there's a little bit of a learning curve, but it's very accessible these days with online learning. Like I wish more people would get into software engineering. I think that would be a net benefit for the world. I totally agree with you there. We see it a lot. Like I used to teach at a boot camp, and you see people being like, wow, like you must be really good at math or you must be really special. I'm like, no, literally just kept chugging at it. And then you see these people five, six years later and you look at them like, wow, you 
really grown. And it's, it's honestly just putting in the work. For sure. Let's move over to some sick picks. Sick picks is a section of the show where we pick things that are sick. Do you have anything you'd like to sick pick? Yeah. So I'm going to talk about Notion, Notion.so. A lot of people have heard of it. They recently raised a new round of capital. I think they're valued at $2 billion, but they are a Silicon Valley startup and they're building really, really great note-taking slash organizational app. It's kind of like a Markdown editor. If any of you have written Markdown before on like a GitHub readme or something like that, but it's like abstracted away and it's really, really elegant. Like you can just type notes, you can do like slash H3 and I'll put it in an H3 header slash H1. And it's all in the cloud and it's just designed so beautifully and you can embed stuff. You can embed PDFs. It's it's what I use for pretty much all my notes these days. I don't have a notes app on my phone anymore. Yeah, Notion. I think it's pretty awesome. We use Notion to do this podcast. I'm, I'm looking at it right now with all of our notes, things that we want to talk about to you. And it, we 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 do all of our sponsors in Notion. We all of our calendars, all of our sick picks. Everything is is in Notion. It's just awesome. Uh, an awesome That's app. Sweet. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really cool. Plus, it's it's all in web tech, right? Under the hood, it's just uh, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Yeah, tried to get a job at Notion, but apparently they don't hire interns. Oh, really? <laughs> well, yeah. if uh, maybe somebody that's there's quite a few people listening to this podcast, so maybe somebody will uh, will want you to be an intern after hearing this. Yeah, we'll have to see. <laughs> um, we'll have to see. I'm going to sick pick some hardware stuff. So. Uh, we we did Scott and I did a show on like smart home and things like this, and we talked about these sawn off switches where it's 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 a really cheap like a five dollar Wi Fi switch, and you have to code in your own you have to put in your own cord and everything like that. And I love it, and I was recently looking for something to cheaply make my garage door smart. And uh, my dad, I was just talking to my dad, and he did it as well. And and there's these really cheap Wi-Fi modules that will open and close or or inch mm-hmm. inch thing. It's electronics. It's not really my my wheelhouse, but I know enough to be dangerous. So uh, you can go on Amazon. You can find for for fifteen, twenty, twenty five bucks. You can find these little modules that you can power by USB, or you can power it by the one I got either does seven to 32 volts AC or DC, which is amazing. So, so many different situations you can plug this thing in. Um, and I'm going to hook up my garage doors to it and, and open and close it. So my dad did it and it, it worked really easy. The app is called Ewe Link, E-W-E-L-I-N-K, some random Chinese app, which is probably great to pump pipe all of your information through. But um, I specifically hook it up to to Google Home and it works great. It's cool. A lot of integration stuff. I can just imagine like installing that in your garage. And then are you married? Yeah. Married, yeah. Married three kids. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> and just opening and closing the garage without them knowing they'll be freaking out. They're like, oh my God. There's <laughs> like, what's wrong, honey? I, I'm in vacation. I'm in, I'm in the Caribbean. The garage door won't stop opening and closing. I don't know anything about that. There's a lot of nefarious things. I, you can do we actually that. do that with my kids. I tell them to say abracadabra. And then when they say it, I push the button on my phone and it turns the light on and it just blows their mind as to how that works. They think it's really cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So I'll link it. I know I didn't say what the name of it is because it's just this random circuit board with Wi-Fi chips on it, but I'll link it up in the show notes. I have a sick pick for you today, and this is going to be a YouTube channel, which I, I have a lot of YouTube channel 
picks and a lot of podcast picks, of which I'll, I'll have more. But I have a YouTube channel pick for a YouTube channel that I've been watching a lot of. They don't put out a ton of ton of content because their videos are quite a bit involved. And it's not a topic that I've ever been interested in. Let me tell you this. I I do play video games, but I'm not a gamer. You know, I play video games, but I'm not a gamer. And this channel is Summoning Salt. Now, Summoning Salt is a channel that documents the history of speedrunning in various video games. And what's so fascinating about this specifically is that it's not about the person who, I mean, sometimes it is, yes, about the person who is the best at the video game. But in some situations, like Mario Brothers, there's all these interesting glitches that are programmatic glitches within the application. And like, if you land on a certain sub-pixel between here and there, something goes with, wrong with the math, and you can glitch through one wall, shaving off, you know, 0.1 milliseconds off your time, therefore giving you a new world record. It's an absolutely fascinating look. And these videos are not short, uh, for instance, the latest one they just released was on Ninja Gaiden, and it was 44 minutes long, and it was good. It was very good. And he does these all in a very excellent documentary format. There's the one about uh, Punch-Out that I found to be excellent as well. And just so many of these are absolutely fascinating. I've been watching this YouTube channel for a little bit. And like I said, I'm, I've never been into speedrunning before. And I find these to be just so entertaining and so interesting, especially from a web developer or developer perspective. So uh, check it out. Summoning Salt on YouTube. Shameless plugs. Uh, do you have anything you'd like to shamelessly plug to the audience? I mean, obviously, Zipcall, <laughs> zipcall.io, if you want free decentralized browsing that doesn't track you it's fast and just works in the browser check it out open up a github issue if you don't like something let me know what you think and if you want to see more stuff from me if you want to see all my crappy coding projects you know i'm really not that smart <laughs> ianramsey.com is my personal portfolio i-a-n-r-a-m-z-y.com i have some interesting stuff there and you want to talk to me shoot me an email if you've got some ideas I'm always down to chat well, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was very enjoyable to, to dig into it. Hopefully the audience will enjoy it as well. And uh, that's it. Thanks again. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Head on over to Syntax.fm for a full archive of all of our shows. And don't forget to subscribe in your podcast player or drop a review if you like this show.